Hello and welcome to Upgrade Thought. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Daniel Susser, a professor at Cornell. Dr. Susser has devoted his professional career to understanding technology in a comprehensive way, approaching technological issues philosophically, ethically, politically, legally, etc. These are very timely topics. In this episode, we discuss technology in a relevant and understandable way. Expect to hear a refreshing perspective on artificial intelligence as Susser explains why AI is just a marketing term, why he is not scared of it, and how concerns related to existential risk might distract us from more pressing issues. In addition, we discuss how much control we have over technology, gig economies, surveillance, how people can learn more about technology, and more. Enjoy. Technology is a very broad term. How do you define technology? What counts as technology? Yeah, so this is um, a question that philosophers and uh, social theorists have debated for a long time. Uh, I tend to take a pretty big view, expansive view of technology. Um, the, the political theorist Langdon Winner, uh, who's very prominent in uh, philosophy of technology, um, he defines technology as artificial aids to human activity, which I kind of like. Um, it's sort of like a big capacious definition. Um, and if you think about technology as artificial aids to human activity, those you know could be any kinds of artificial aids. They could be uh, physical things like um, you know like your smartphone, uh, digital things like the software on it. Uh, but it could also be, you know, techniques um, or uh, social practices. Like I even tend to think about political practices like democracy as a kind of technology, uh, an artificial aid mm. to our activity. Um, but in general, I like to take a, a big expansive view on technology because it helps us see that there is more continuity than discontinuity. Um, as I'm sure we'll talk about, there's this, you know, a, a sense, I think, especially right now, as the pace of technological development is increasing, uh, that sort of like everything, everything is new under the sun. But actually, I tend to think the, the new technologies we encounter are more like our older technologies than they are uh, dis dislike them, so, um, or unlike mm. them. So I... I like to think of technology yeah, in big, big, broad terms. Mm. Does technology control us or do we control it? This is this is a great question. This is a question I start uh, a lot of my classes off with. I'm curious, what do you think? Uh, do you think that technology controls us or that we control it? Can I turn that? Can I turn the interview yeah. around? <laughs> uh, put me on the spot there. Huh? Mm -hmm. uh, so my thought is that, well, Obviously, it's you can't really choose one or the other, but I think so. I think it's a very there's sort of an intermingling between the two because I obviously mm. we sort of create it, but you know, once we kind of put it out and, and create technology in you know, whatever sense, given that we're defining it with pretty broad terms, which I like, I think that that kind of comes back in the other direction and it's sort of you know, flips the coin around, so to speak, and then that dictates our behavior to, a, you know, a pretty large extent. And 
I think there are, I mean, I'm not too well read on the research. Uh, I'm sure you could, you know, speak more intelligently about that than I could, but just subjectively speaking, I think it's, you know, changed just having access to technology has completely changed, not just my behavior, but also, you know, mental health, how I feel, how I interact with people. And, you know, that, all of that controls how we, you know, obviously that controls our lives and our behaviors and, you know, how we learn and think about the world, but it also will end up controlling how we control technology, you know? So it's very like technology. So, you know, to, to put that more shortly, technology influences how we influence technology, which, you know, so <laughs> there's so much back and forth that it's extremely difficult to answer the question. And obviously I, I recognize that that's a, this is a very hard question, but I don't know. I mean, what are your more, more educated thoughts? No, I, I don't think I could have put it better myself. I totally agree. I mean, I think, you know, there are, there are like these very oversimplified narratives that people I think tend to fall into um, when they think about this question about sort of the direction of control is, are we controlling technology or is it controlling us? So there's a kind of like, there are two ends of a spectrum, say, where on one end people think, um, you know, we have complete control over technology. Technologies are just these inert things. They don't have uh, feelings or emotions or thoughts or beliefs or attachments. Uh, they don't have intentions. Importantly, they can't like do what they want, right? They don't want anything. Um, this is what scholars tend to describe as a kind of technological neutrality narrative. These are just like neutral mm. tools. Um, so you, I'm sure you've heard people uh, like make, make claims that fit that narrative um, before. Um, so, you know, we don't blame the technology. It's all about the user, et cetera. Right. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, you have what are sometimes called sort of technological deterministic narratives where people think, look, there's nothing we can do about the impacts of these kinds of systems on our lives. Uh, once they're developed, they kind of have a logic or take on a life of their own, and we're all just kind of along for the ride. So you hear narratives like that oftentimes when people talk about things like automation. Um, so you know, people have always worried about robots coming and taking our jobs, right? This is a very old worry. Um, and that's a kind of deterministic narrative because it says, you know, once we develop the technology, we have no control over the impacts that it will have on things like labor, right? It doesn't recognize that we might exert different forms of guidance or control around that. It says there's nothing we can do. So like you, I think both of those narratives are, you know, there is some truth to them, but I think that they are highly oversimplified. Um, and really, the answer is much more complicated, and it's somewhere in the middle. Um, I think if we don't pay attention to how technologies are impacting our lives, I think they can have enormous effects on our individual experiences, on our relationships with other people, uh, not to mention sort of big social and political effects kind of at the at the large scale, like collective level. Uh, so, you know, if we're not careful about it, then of course these technologies can have just, you know, massive impacts on our lives and they are having massive impacts on our lives. But if we think about it and try to exert control, uh, make an effort and think about the tools that we have at our disposal to 
guide new technological development, to uh, figure out on the front end what kinds of impacts it might have. Uh, we won't be able to anticipate all of them, but we can make some good educated guesses, right? Um, then I think we have a, a very significant ability to control technologies and the kinds of effects that they have on us. And this is why I think you know we need things like technology ethics and policy so urgently, because if we spend time and energy thinking about these kinds of questions on the front end, uh, then I think there's, you know, there's a lot we can do. Hmm. So you teach an information ethics law and policy class. Uh, this is a very timely topic for obvious reasons. First of all, how do you balance teaching, you know, a foundational understanding of the, of the material with teaching current events? Also, what current events do you talk about and get into? Yeah, much like, you know, I was saying a second ago that I take a pretty big view on, on what constitutes what constitutes technology. And, and part of the reason I do that is because I think there is more uh, continuity than discontinuity um, in all of my classes, uh, very much including the, the information ethics law and policy class that I'm currently uh, co-teaching with a colleague of mine. Um, we, we I emphasize and we're emphasizing in this class that there are important new developments that we need to think about, take stock of, um, and work on, but they are not completely new. They are not like, they, they generally don't present problems uh, that we've never thought about before or developed uh, conceptual tools or political tools or legal or regulatory tools uh, for dealing with. Um, so just because things are new and shiny doesn't mean that we don't have uh, a lot of experience trying to deal with the kinds of problems that they produce. So, you know, for example, a big thing, obviously, right now that everyone is talking about and that we're talking about in our class is uh, large language models like ChatGPT um, and the kinds of impacts that those new technologies are having on various uh, spheres of our lives, various activities and so on. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, large language models are incredibly impressive technologies. They demonstrate certain kinds of capabilities that computers simply couldn't do a few years ago. Um, but if you zoom out a little bit, they, they sort of present ethical, political policy problems that are not totally unfamiliar to us. So a lot of people are worried about how ChatGPT is um, going to impact intellectual property law, right? So these models are trained on huge data sets of, you know, if it's a language model, then that's big text corpora. Uh, if it's a, an image model like DALI, then it's going to be trained on tons of images. And oftentimes those texts and images are like other people's copyrighted artistic or intellectual work. And these systems are ingesting all of it and kind of spitting out things that it presents as its own new material. Um, so those are important intellectual property questions. And while ChatGPT and other large language models, um, you know, create sort of like new interesting dilemmas for that uh, for that set of policy tools, they're not completely unfamiliar to us. We have we have strategies for dealing with them. Um, likewise, you know, something that I think people are starting to think a lot about and work on 
or questions about how things like gig economy apps um, are changing the labor force, right? Changing our jobs and uh, how they are managed and distributed, how well they're paid and so on. Uh, and in some ways, things like, you know, gig economy platforms like Uber and Lyft uh, do create sort of like new dynamics that we have to think about and wrestle with. Um, but questions about how technology are going to impact uh, the labor force, about how they'll change the nature of people's jobs, how they'll change, uh, you know, relations of power in the workplace and so on, are... These are not like new questions. We've been asking these questions for a long time, right? So in our classes, we really try to stress how um, the, the technologies do present new and interesting sort of case studies that we should wrestle with. Um, but there, you know, there, there's not much new under the sun. And so we have really um, good, useful frameworks um, that we've developed over long periods of time to deal with all sorts of technologies that can be applied to these to these new contexts. Mm. Can you um, can you just talk a little bit more about what those frameworks are and how we've like dealt with these uh, sort of particularly the economic question of like will of these certain you know of these specific technologies taking people's jobs like how has that concern been addressed uh, previously like what frameworks what frameworks do we have to deal with that? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, we historically, like, let's just stay in the U.S. because um, that's where I'm most familiar with, with the law and policy landscape. Um, you know, over the course of the early to mid 20th century, we developed a huge body of, like, labor law and regulation that was designed to ensure that workers are not sort of wantonly exploited by their employers. Um, and so we develop things like um, workplace safety rules, you know, uh, administrative agencies like OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health that's, you know, Agency or whatever it stands for. Um, we put in place things like minimum wages, um, rights for workers to organize, um, a whole sort of like suite of policies, right, that are meant to kind of rebalance a little bit the power between um, workers and industry leaders, managers, um, company owners. And technology platforms, gig economy platforms in particular, have caused real problems for these frameworks, um, in large part by just letting companies circumvent them. Um, so you've probably seen like in the news in the last couple of years, there have been a bunch of lawsuits around um, gig platforms like Uber and Lyft classifying their drivers not as workers, but as what they sort of like euphemistically call like driver partners and things like that, right? They're not employees of Uber. Um, they're, they're people who Uber is just helping to, um, to put in touch with, you know, riders who need a ride in, you know, to, from, from point A to point B. Um, and Part of that, like the, what those lawsuits are litigating is not just sort of like some some terminological problem, like are these drivers, are they, are they employees or not? What's at stake is whether or not these drivers will get the kinds of regulatory protections that people spent, you know, all, decades and decades fighting uh, for workers to have. 
And as long as Uber drivers are classified as you know, non-employees, as independent contractors or uh, driver partners, then they don't get workplace safety protections and they don't get a minimum wage. Um, the, 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 the main sort of effect, I think a lot of these um, like gig economy platforms have had has been to just sort of allow companies to circumvent the rules that we used to rely on to make sure that workers were uh, protected and had some say in, in the nature of their work, um, got a decent wage, et cetera. Um, so you can see in that that like it's a very old problem, right? The question about sort of the, you know, the imbalance of power between workers and managers, um, worker pay, working conditions, those are those are age old questions. And more recently, you know, in the last century, we developed all sorts of um, really uh, valuable political and policy tools for for dealing with them. And what new technologies like the gig like gig platforms have done is sort of like helped companies route around those uh, those regulations, those laws and policies. Um, and so I don't think we need to like reimagine the problem in a, in a, in a, in a, a significant way to, to get a grip on what's happening here. Um, we need to need to think about how to bring these new tools under the, under the existing frameworks that we already have that have been working to some extent for a while. Hmm. So what, what first got you interested in the field of technology policy? What makes you so passionate about it that you are devoting your professional career to it? Yeah. Um, well, so when I was an undergrad, I studied uh, computer science and philosophy, um, not because I like saw any particular connections between them, at least initially, um, but I just really like loved both subjects. And over time, I did start to see connections between them. I started to see how technology posed these interesting questions uh, for philosophy and how philosopher, philosophy offered interesting sort of tools for thinking through technological problems. Um, and so it had sort of stayed in the back of my mind that it would be interesting to like continue exploring those connections. Um, and then I sort of like graduated from college and, and worked, uh, worked for a little while and eventually decided I wanted to go back uh, to school, to grad school. And it was like very clear that, I mean, I did okay in computer science, but I was not like a stellar, stellar programmer. Um, so it was pretty clear that if I was going to go to grad school, I should sort of approach these questions more from the philosophical side. My philosophical skills were, were more promising than my, uh, my engineering skills. Uh, so I decided to do a degree, uh, a PhD in philosophy. Um, but specifically, I went to work um, with a, a philosopher named Don Eide, who um, specialized in philosophy of technology. Um, so I put those questions sort of right at the center of my, my graduate studies. Um, and after I finished my degree, I, I worked in a philosophy department for a couple of years, but eventually I, I found my way over to information science, which I didn't even know about when I was a graduate student, but is this really amazing field that, um, has, you know, been developing, um, over, over many decades really, but has, has taken off recently, um, that tries to understand the kinds of questions that I try to understand, which is questions right at the intersection of technology, uh, human experience, social systems, 
um, and incorporates perspectives from like across disciplines. So in in information science, you know, I have colleagues who are in computer science, who are in, so, you know, from sociology, from law, from economics, um, history. And so for me, it's really, really exciting now to sort of be in a context where uh, I'm with a bunch of people who are all kind of interested in the same set of problems that I am, but come at them from really different perspectives. And fortunately in the, like, in the, in like, all the while, like as this as this sort of um, was unfolding in my own in my own life, it seems like the broader public has become really interested in the kinds of technology ethics and policy questions that I've been interested in, um, and so that's very lucky for me. I can't say I planned it that way. Um, did you see that? Did you did you see that coming or no? No, no, not at all. I just like was was sort of exploring my own little interests, you know. Um, but I am mm -hmm. very lucky that those interests happened to um, sort of map on to, to larger larger trends. And now people are, I think, for good reason, uh, sort of broadly interested in a lot of these questions. And so I am very lucky to get to to get to work on them all the time. Yeah. So now let's let's zero in on AI. Um, yeah. So starting starting with the basics, what what exactly is artificial intelligence, and how do these things work? Artificial intelligence. I mean, I tend to treat this mostly as a kind of marketing term. Um, so artificial intelligence is uh, whatever like whiz bang technology uh, tech companies are trying to sort of impress us with at the moment. I mean, I think there are different ways of approaching that question. You know, historically, the term has been around since at least the 1950s, um, almost like simultaneous with the emergence, you know, the, the invention of computers. Uh, people almost immediately started to think about like, oh my God, like these, you know, quote unquote, thinking machines, what will happen when they can think as well as we can, when we create some kind of artificial, you know, intelligence. Um, and some people have really tried to parse the question carefully. In philosophy of technology, there's uh, a sort of long lineage of people thinking about what intelligence even is, and therefore what might constitute a kind of artificial or computational intelligence. Um, but if, if what we're interested in ultimately is trying to understand the big ethical and political uh, problems that these new technologies are presenting us with, I think it maybe is more helpful to just treat it as a marketing term um, than it is to get into the, the sort of deep conceptual weeds, because I don't think big tech companies really care about that stuff. Um, so, you know, I remember 10 years ago, we weren't talking about AI, we were talking about big data. Um, and, you know, fundamentally, like, these are the same set of technologies, like underlying computational technologies, um, as we were talking about, then there are new developments, and they have evolved and progressed in really impressive ways. Um, but they are, you know, they're, they're not different in kind from what we were seeing before. Um, so in general, I tend to think like, AI is technology doing stuff that we didn't think computers could do, and now they can do them. So we call it AI. <laughs> um, and maybe the most, like the most uh, useful way to think about it, I tend to, whenever possible, um, to like substitute the word AI with the word automation. 
Um, so okay. I think for me, at least, a lot of the problems that I'm interested in um, have less to do with like the, the underlying computational system, like the nature of the tool, um, and more to do with what happens when we hand over um, important decision-making processes or other kinds of functionality that we would like normally expect a human to do, what happens when we give it to a computer and automate it? Um, and I think that can kind of help help shift the frame a little bit. Um, sometimes the underlying technology does matter, and so we should like we should think about that, and then we have to get into the specifics. Um, but oftentimes, I think just kind of replacing the term with automation gets us gets us a lot of the way there. Yeah, I was going to ask you about um, like what the biggest misconceptions uh, are uh, in regards to AI. But mm -hmm. before we get before I ask you that, I mean, one of the patterns that I'm sort of seeing is that it's I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I uh, I sort of get the sense that one of the you know big misconceptions about it is that, you know, all this AI stuff is kind of starting now and it's, you know, beginning to. Uh, it's it's sort of a recent development that's happening to us now, and it's you know this new thing that we have to figure out how to deal with. But it seems like you're saying no, like these these problems, these technological and philosophical problems, have been around for years and years and years. It's just that things like ChatGPT might be you know another step in that direction and just a new development. Is that what would you say to that? Yeah, hundred percent. And I think that um, you know we should think about like who benefits exactly from our thinking that these things are just so new and complex and difficult to understand that like no ordinary person could possibly grasp them. Um, I mean, if you think that, if you think like these new tools, like you know, no, without you know a PhD in computer science, you can't possibly understand them or their implications. That sort of, in, by implication, gives a lot of power to the very people who are building and deploying these tools, right? That gives so that's, a lot of. That's yeah. sort of why you view. That's why you view it as a marketing term, in in a sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that the tech industry benefits very significantly if we all think that they're the things that they are developing are too complicated for us to understand, right? Because then mm -hmm. why bother? Um, now, uh, to give credit to give credit where credit's due, I think some of these technologies are extremely complex, and they're um, incredibly capable. And some of the things they can do are amazing. So don't get me wrong about that. Um, but I think a lot of the kinds of problems that we're worried about are not specific to the very particular intricate details of the computational technologies themselves, um, you know, the kinds of problems that we've been talking about around like, you know, uh, gig economy platforms getting around labor regulations or chat GPT interfering with our intellectual property regime. Like those are questions that don't require any deep understanding of how these technologies work at a really granular level to work on. Um, there are some questions that do. And in those cases, like we need experts. But I think in general, um, you know, you started to ask about like the biggest conception, misconception about AI. And I think that the biggest misconception is that we even really need to understand sort of how machine learning works at a granular level in order to, to govern it. Um, I think if people are worried about AI, um, you know, I think they should just be really specific about what they're worried about. 
Um, is your is your worry that computers are becoming too powerful? Um, if that's your worry, like why does that worry you? We've had that worry for a long time, right? Um, if your worry is that these you know these systems are collecting a ton of personal data about you, like maybe the real worry is like a privacy question, which we have we have tools to think through. Um, so the the by making AI into this kind of magical or all-powerful, inscrutable thing, um, I think it makes people feel disempowered. Um, and so really we should just be thinking about what are the particular worries that we have about these new tools and the way they're intervening in our lives. And I think some of those worries at least, um, you know, can be, can be gotten at without worrying about the particular kinds of algorithms or statistical tools or mathematical models that are, that are underlying them. Ah, okay. So, well, I sort of have been thinking about this question while you were, while you were, making those points. Do you think like, so first of all, you're kind of reframing my perspective because I used to sort of, I, I definitely fell into that marketing trap as like mm -hmm. viewing a, like I sort of thought it was like, you know, for the last whatever, 50 or so years, or I don't know. I mean, however long you want to call it 10 years, 20 years, whatever, last couple decades, that's sort of the era of like technology. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then now is, and, and now I was sort of like, or I was previously before this conversation viewing this era, the present as like, you know, the era of AI, but now I'm kind of reframing my perspective and thinking that both are, you know, kind of the same elongated continuous process rather than just a completely new set of, you know, pieces of technology and problems, which yeah, obviously there are developments, but I think now I get the sense that it's a lot more continuous than I and, you know, the people I've talked to about this probably thought. Yeah, uh, good. I'm happy to hear that. That's always, if I can sort of like get one message across, I want it to be that. Because, I mean, if you think about it, like that's, I hope at least, a more empowering way of thinking about these these new tools, right? It's because, definitely reassuring. It's, good. it's definitely reassuring. Yeah, which again, um, is not to downplay the real, like important ethical, political, social problems that they're creating, but rather just to, to remind everyone that like, we are capable of wrestling with those problems. And so we shouldn't feel like just because these technologies are so new and complex and so on that that we don't have tools for, for dealing with them. Yeah. So then what is the scariest thing about AI? Do you have any, any fears about it? Oh, I mean, I'm not, I don't think I'm scared of AI. Um, I think, you know, partially for the reasons we were just talking about, I think these tools are, um, they represent differences in degree rather than differences in kind from the kinds of things that we've seen in the past. Um, but, you know, if anything, I think we like, we give them too much credit. I, you know, I worry that people think they're capable of more uh, than they actually are. Um, you know, if you if you if you actually talk to like people who are developing new machine learning algorithms and you know related kinds of technologies that typically fall under the umbrella of of AI, um, those people will be the first to tell you that like these technologies are not ready to like drive cars for us or do surgery or whatever the tech industry is trying to convince us they're ready to do. Um, you know, most uh, people who work on AI that I know are like not getting in self-driving cars in San Francisco <laughs> because the technology is not is not there. Um, so I 
I think I'm not scared of AI like as a set of tools. Um, I, I do worry a lot about the kinds of problems that we were talking about before, which is the way these new or the different ways these new sets of tools um, are thwarting the kinds of strategies and guardrails and um, regulations, laws and policies that we've, we've put in place over time to deal with the kinds of problems like privacy and uh, worker rights and so on, like we've been talking about. Um, I worry that these new technologies are kind of routing around these, these important you know, strategies that we've developed over time. Um, but, in, you know, and we can talk in more granular detail. I mean, I think there are like certain kinds of dynamics that, that newer, um, newer data-driven technologies have introduced that I worry about, um, things like personalization online. I, I have some, like, some granular worries about, I worry a lot about the, the privacy implications of these new tools. Um, but again, these are more specific worries. They're not like AI is, is scary. And so, you know, I'm going to cower in fear from these new, you know, robot overlords or whatever. It's more about the kind of granular um, problems that new technologies can produce in our lives. Mm. So kind of to, you know, harken back to the question about like, because I think a pretty common fear that people have is like AI taking their job. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, so it sort of seems like you're saying, number one, this problem, that worry has been around since, you know, the, the birth of anything technology related, correct? 100%, yes. Okay. I mean, well, just to play devil's advocate, is it possible that like, maybe it's, you know, that, that worry is valid, but just over a longer time horizon than people think, but it still is possible in the future. Like maybe in our kids or, or our grandkids lifetime, then, you know, they might have to be worried about AI potentially taking their job and having pretty long lasting effects on the economy. Like what, what would you say to that? I think that's totally possible. Um, but I also think that maybe it's a slight distraction from a more pressing set of, of, questions that we need to face right now in the moment, which is not about, you know, tool, like, you know, tools like AI, um, quote unquote, taking people's jobs, like, you know, putting people out of work, but rather, how are these tools changing people's jobs um, and changing their relationships with their employers, like we've been talking about? Um, you know, I'll give a plug to my colleague, Karen Levy, who recently published an amazing book about technology in the trucking industry. Um, and you know, this is a perfect example of the kind of job that the big kind, you know, sort of like news narratives, uh, as we were talking about before, sort of technological deterministic narratives suggested were going to go away very soon, right? Truck drivers were like in the in the first list of of, of jobs that were going to disappear because self-driving cars were going to put them out of work. And um, what what Karen shows in her book is that like, well, you know, that hasn't happened yet. And self-driving cars, you know, I, I have little reason to believe are going to put, you know, sort of fully put drivers out of car, uh, out of the, the driver's seat anytime soon. Um, but in the meantime, over the last decade or so, um, the incorporation of surveillance technologies into uh, the trucks that truck drivers drive um, have radically changed 
um, the like nature of the work that truck drivers are doing, um, the relationships that they have with employers, the kind of um, autonomy they have. Um, it used to be the case that your employer, if you were a truck driver, sort of like filled the truck with goods and set you off on the road. And then, you know, you checked in maybe by phone uh, once a day or something. And then they just, you know, you got to, to the destination and unloaded and that's when they checked in on you. Um, but now there's almost constant surveillance of what truck drivers are doing in their, in their cars, how fast they're going, how often they stop, how much they're resting. Um, and so that has changed the nature of their work really significantly. And I think we're gonna see a lot of that in a lot of industries. Um, so the incorporation of these new technologies into people's workplaces is going to have huge impacts on the way they work. Um, you know, a big thing, another example that we saw emerge really, I mean, it wasn't new, but we saw it emerge in a really dramatic way during COVID is the kind of surveillance software that employers put on their employees' computers to monitor what they're doing throughout the day. Um, and this was something that existed to some extent prior to COVID, but when people went home for a couple years to work from home um, with their work laptops that were controlled by their jobs, um, the, the use of those kinds of workplace surveillance tools skyrocketed. And from what I can tell, it hasn't gone back to the to the status quo ante, and so the these new technologies are not putting you know white collar sort of service service workers out of jobs, um, but they are having real impacts on the nature of people's work. Um, and so, on the one hand, I think your like long time horizon question is a good one, and we should definitely keep an eye on those longer term dynamics, but we shouldn't let them um, sort of completely distract us from some of what's happening right here, like in the moment. So do you think people are distracted? Like, do you think AI is distracting us or I guess the the long-term consequences of AI and the sort of the long-term worst case scenarios of AI, is that distracting us from more pressing issues right now, would you say? And if so, which like, I know you were kind of talking about it before, but like what issues specifically? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to sound like a broken record a little bit. Um, but, you know, I think there's a lot of emphasis like in the news and in the like the corporate media about, um, you know, things like the existential risk of AI, um, artificial general intelligence, like coming to life and destroying the planet or whatever Elon Musk is worried about this week. Um, we should notice that like most of these worries are coming from like the PR branches of the very companies that are developing these technologies. So we might ask questions about why they want these, these things that they're producing to seem so scary to people. Um, I think that like a lot of that is, um, is a distraction um, from the kinds of issues that we've been talking about, from the kinds of very familiar issues that technologies have been creating for a long time, issues around privacy and surveillance, around inequalities, whether they're you know, economic inequality or inequalities of power, um, even sort of like basic, I'm gonna sound like a, like a real kind of like ivory tower, uh, pie in the sky philosopher now, um, but like basic questions about what it means to do meaningful work, um, to have like good, healthy relationships, to like live a good and meaningful life. Um, those questions are all impacted um, by the kinds of technologies that we incorporate into our lives for the reasons that you were describing at the top, right? When you were talking about the control that technologies have over 
your life? Um, and I think those questions need to kind of remain front and center. Um, and we shouldn't like completely ignore the bigger set of questions. I think there is there is value in kind of working through speculative but plausible long-term risks. Um, I think it's like, it's always good to have a few people working on that. So we're not like completely taken by surprise. Um, but I'm very encouraged that it seems like the, the big trends in um, at least in academic uh, technology, ethics and policy seems to be shifting much more toward these more granular and familiar problems um, that I think are, are, are impacting all of us right now. So you, you mentioned that one of the, you know, biggest effects of AI now that we should be worrying about is, and you talked about how exactly it's going to change people's job and their, you know, their relationship, you know, with their boss or with their work. What are some solutions that have been proposed to this dilemma? And, you know, what are some things that we can do about that to kind of, I don't know, mitigate concerns or mitigate risks associated with, with that shift in your eyes and in the eyes of other experts and, you know, what have people proposed? Does that make sense? Yeah. So this is going to uh, sound like a pretty um, like low tech response. Um, but I think that we, in order to solve these kinds of problems, we need to look to the sort of familiar suite of social and political and legal tools that we've relied on for, for a long time. So I think, you know, we need to educate people about these kinds of issues, which is why I'm so thrilled about, you know, the, like podcasts like this. Um, I think we, there's, there's, a, there is the easiest way to fight the perception that these tools are too complicated for us to rein in is by educating people about these tools. So like, I'm a big proponent of, I think it's like a scandal that we don't have more basic computing education like in K through 12 um, school. Uh, so I think we should be teaching kids about, about machine learning, about AI and so on from a young age, um, obviously in a way that is like appropriate to, to their understanding. But I think it gives people much more, a, a much greater sense of agency over these things. So I think education is really important. Um, and then I think, you know, we, we need, new laws and regulations that are going to um, not only sort of put guardrails around these tools, I think guardrails are important, but will also um, positively shape how they're developed. Um, and in order to get those kinds of laws, we, you know, we have to organize uh, politically, um, you have to get representatives into office who care about these kinds of issues and then make sure that they um, have access to whatever expertise um, they need to, to think through them. Um, so I think there's a lot of that. That's like an old an old strategy, right? Um, organizing socially, organizing politically in order to create new laws, new policies. Um, I think there are lots of good ideas available um, in the academic literature, um, in the, uh, the policy space, think tanks, and so on. There are plenty of good ideas about how to politically rein in um, these kinds of technologies and, and to, to 
implement them in a way that they make everyday people's lives better. Um, there are tons of ideas about how to do that. And I think uh, the trick, as always, is uh, sort of getting um, getting political power in place to implement them. So you might have seen this week um, the Biden administration release an executive order on artificial intelligence, um, which doesn't have a whole lot of like enforcement teeth, but it has a lot of good ideas in it. Um, and so you can see that like there are people who are are really thinking about and trying to to put these laws and policies in place. And I think that we have to find ways to empower them. And that is it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you just heard, definitely consider subscribing to the podcast. In addition, you can follow the podcast on Instagram at Upgrade Thought. Thank you and have a great day.